everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. So the year was 1888, and a man named Gustav was sitting at his engineering desk, scribbling the drawings of something that he wanted to build. Um, there was a contest that he had to win first in order to be granted the money and the rights to be able to build it where he wanted to build it. And I'm going to show you a picture. Um, he ended up winning that contest. I want to show you a couple pictures of how he began his project. Let's show this first. And if you know what it is right away, don't, don't, sh- uh, don't spill it, but give me that next picture. You might be going, oh, yeah, I for sure know what this is. Give me the next one. You got it? Gustav is busy scribbling. Give me that next one. And then, of course, let's see what it looks like today. Gustav Eiffel was this man's name, and he built his famous Eiffel Tower. This was done because uh, Paris was the location of the World Expo that particular year. And they, they had put out a contest to all the civil engineers and the architects in town of, we want to have a statement piece, something that when people come, they, they would not just see the beauty of our town and our baguettes, but they would see something wonderful. Like they, they would see a statement about who we are as a French people. And so as Eiffel was sitting down and, and drawing different sketches, he said, I want something that has the dominance of the pyramids of Egypt but I want it to have the elegance of curves. I want it to be something that is not built in straight lines because as we're looking ahead to a modern age, as we get into the 1900s, I want something decisively modern, but decisively tied to the past. I want it to represent not only who France is today, but who we are becoming because we are of the elite of of the countries on planet Earth. We are leading the way when it comes not only to architecture, but to beauty and to art in the Industrial Revolution. And, and the problem that he had was that he really wanted to use iron for this project. And, and people had been trying all over the world to use iron better. And the only way they could really do it well was to put it inside of the building. Because when you take iron and you build in the old ways, the ways that you would build with rock or stone or wood, everything was these straight wall, right angle, and it ends up looking like a tough shed, right? Like not the most aesthetically pleasing thing. And for, for Gustav, he was like, I want that to be the outside. That to me represents forward progress for humanity. I want it to be iron. And so when he won, when he won the contract from the city of Paris to start building this tower, He knew right away, I'm gonna have some opposition, and boy, did he. I don't know if you know this, but um, shortly after he started the official drawings and sharing them with people around, 300 other architects and artists and politicians began signing petitions together to say, this cannot happen. We cannot believe that this was the idea that won the contract. He should not be allowed to do this. And thankfully, for the city of Paris, the the folks who had approved it said, no, we're sticking by our guy. However, if it frustrates you that much, we'll tear it down in a few years. And the idea was it could be used for different things. They could melt it back down. They could use it for Navy ships, something like that. But the cool thing about Gustav is that he had this idea. This is not just a tower. It's not just a structure. There's more that's going on here that you can't see today. But he was a visionary. He could see things that other people couldn't see. 
As they got closer to the actual expo, he installed a weather observation station on the very top. It had never been done before at the time, and for the next 41 years, this was the tallest building in the world, far and away. So there were people up there observing uh, radiation coming off the face of the earth. There were people observing weather patterns. It wasn't too much longer after that, this new idea called a radio started to come along and he said, let's put a radio antenna on top of the tower in France before anybody else in the world was broadcasting thousands of kilometers away. Right before World War I, they could broadcast all the way to South America. Nobody else was doing things like this. And Gustav, not knowing that that would come along, was sitting back in his chair smiling like an idiot. This, this is what I was talking about. There was more to this than you could see or even that I could see at the time. There, there's more. World War II came along, and because of how strong this now new antenna tower, elegant, beautiful, statement piece of the city, had become, Paris became the central hub to intercept Nazi radio transmissions. It's, it was remarkable what all that happened in this place. And yet there was still this, this idea that he would have to win back uh, the ability to keep it there. The city of Paris was still thinking, once we get to about the 1940s, 50s, we're going to tear this down. Montreal, seeing an opportunity and also hosting a World Expo in the late 60s, said, hey, if you want to disassemble that, we'll reassemble it in Montreal. We'll take it off your hands for you. To which Gustave Eiffel said, over my dead French body. <laughs> and over time, the Eiffel Tower has not just been a really beautiful building. It's not just been a radio tower. It's not just been a place to watch radiant heat coming off the Earth's crust. It's become the crowning achievement of the Parisian silhouette. You can see a fraction of the building being built and right away go, that's Paris. That's the Eiffel Tower. You don't have to see a lot of it if you know what the full thing is going to be when it's done to know exactly what it is. And I love Gustave Eiffel. It's ironic, a little bit, we're talking about the French. Um, they, they really had strong statements about spirituality, especially Gustave. Wasn't super on board with all that, but he was a visionary, and he knew what it meant to carry a vision when nobody else around him could see it. And the story we're going to be diving in today with Jesus is a story where Gustav and Jesus, the lines blur a lot, because I think Jesus is beginning to see and beginning to share with his disciples his friends, his students, and also with his enemies, the other religious teachers at the time, people who weren't even on the same religious page as him, here's where we're going. Here's what I want to build. And, and they, they started signing petitions. And we're going to read about that. Now, uh, we, last week, Steve shared a great message. We talked a lot about this Canaanite woman, this outsider, not Jewish, and how Jesus pulls her in and includes her in what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. From there, we're going to catch up to our story. I'm going to hit a couple really quick things. Jesus starts to go global. Like, until this point in the book of Matthew that we've been studying, the majority, vast majority of what Jesus is doing is he's just hanging out with Jewish people in Jewish towns doing Jewish things. And this Canaanite woman breaks something loose in Jesus because he leaves this experience with her in her hometown, and now we see him go and, and do these mass healings of people, some of which are Jewish, but now we're seeing a lot of non-Jewish people in the mix. 
And he goes from that and he goes up on a hillside and this story you might go, well, we've heard this one. For the second time, there's a crowd of now 4,000 people sitting on a hillside and he turns to his students and he says, give them something to eat. I'm like, we don't have anything. And he's like, okay, you guys, one chapter ago, we literally had this lesson. Like, just feed them for crying out loud. And they, they like, pockets out. We don't know what to do. And he's like, okay, we'll do this lesson over again. It's after school tutor sessions. That's fine. That's fine. Jesus is a great teacher. And he feeds this crowd of people on the side of the mountain. There's some really elegant, beautiful things that I think Matthew is doing with numbers as a Jewish writer. In this comparison of these two stories, we're not going to get to go there today, which is a shame because it's so cool. But now, where we catch up to Jesus today, he's going on another vacation. When he went to go see this Canaanite woman, he went to the, the region of Tyre and Sidon. He came back to the Galilee area for a little bit, but now he's going away again. It's like Jesus is wanting to use up all of his PTO time or something like that. And, and I think what I would want you to know going into this today is this story is the beginning of the end for Jesus. This is the last time he will move away from Jerusalem. And we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of that. But we're going to pick up our story today in Matthew chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles or if you want to turn there. By the way, a handful of you have asked me, like, what translation are you using? I just cannot track it down. I'm sorry if that's been a distraction. I'm using the New Revised Standard Version. Um, For the record, I think it's great if you're reading in another version because you may spot things that you're also not spotting on the screen. It's like you get a two-for-one special. But uh, chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. And it says this, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Okay, first blush, it's like, okay, cool story. This seems to be about Jesus' identity, which it absolutely is. But as folks who live in the West, in America, we, we miss sometimes how important it is to a Jewish author to pay attention to the geography. Where is Jesus? I read Caesarea Philippi and I'm like, sounds like a nice place. Like that, I, I don't know how to differentiate that from somewhere like Bethsaida. Like that, what's the difference? It's all the same to me. It's that, that's not a significant detail. And Matthew's going, what? No. I, Caesarea Philippi, like that, he's in Caesarea Philippi, you don't know what that means? And so I, I think in doing some work this week, I'm so excited and terrified to tell you, Caesarea Philippi was a city whose rating, if it were a, if it were a movie, would be not rated. It would be not rated for explicit language, animal cruelty, drug use, alcohol, violence, sexuality, nudity. It actually kind of sounds like the internet, the more that you think about it. Um, but Jesus, like this is the beginning of the end, the last place he goes before he begins his final walk out the story of Matthew. He's going there. 
And a little bit more digging, let me show you some pictures of Caesarea Philippi. This is kind of the city center, um, but here's the story of Caesarea Philippi. The, the Canaanites, that was the people who were there kind of before the Greeks and the Romans. They found this cave, but they found it because they were following this river, and this river comes out of this cave. It's, it's actually coming from seven different springs that all feed into this one cave system, and then this huge river comes out. Just for giggles, that river joins up with three other rivers, and it becomes the Jordan River on its way down to Galilee. It's pretty cool. But if you're an ancient person walking around and you see a spring coming out of the ground, and this was not a, like a, those weird Canaanites, like the Jewish people had this too, water just coming out of the ground, that's weird. Like there, there is a spiritual aspect to that. And so the Canaanites right away went, this is a place where heaven meets earth. Only if the gods are involved can life come out of something like a rock. Like that's strange. And so the, the story that began was there was this Canaanite god, Baal, and there was a goddess, Asherah. And every year, Baal would come out from his home in the underworld, and he would come out through this cave, and he would go meet up with his girlfriend, lady friend, maybe mom, that's a little weird, and, and they would make babies. And they were both these fertility gods and goddesses, but of different things. And so as, as these people are stumbling on this cave, and they're putting together this story, this cave now has major significance to their everyday life. And they began celebrating this festival. Well then, the Greeks came in and they're like, Canaanite gods, these are dumb. We have some gods that we'd like to tell you about. And the god that began to become the most associated with Caesarea Philippi was the god Pan. Now Pan is kind of a weird god. This is where we get the name Peter Pan from, but to put them up next to each other, you'd be like, those are not the same. Pan was the body, he was a fawn, uh, the legs of a goat, horns of a goat, body of a man. The biggest thing you can see right away is this is a half beast, half man. And if there's one thing you need to know about Pan, but also what it means to worship Pan, it's that you need to be half beast, half man. Because Pan was, was kind of the god of mischief, but he was really associated with fertility himself. And goats were kind of his thing, you know, half goat thing going on. But, but people would go to this city of Pan, to Caesarea Philippi, to worship Pan, to, to pray and hope and practice the idea that the gods would, be, would grant them fertility for that coming year. Now, we're a mixed crowd in here today. We've got kids, um, some younger kids. We've got people who are just a little more reserved in some things. So to talk plainly about what happened in this town, it's deep, y'all. Like, it's, it's it, like, Caesarea Philippi is like if Las Vegas and Mardi Gras had a love child who did daycare at Hugh Hefner's house. Like, <laughs> this is not, th like, it's, it's, this is the most sexually explicit thing you can imagine. Every year, they would host a festival, the Greeks, in Caesarea Philippi. And what you'd do is you'd come, there would be hundreds of thousands of people. Some historians say there might have, it might have swelled to a million people at one point. But you would come to this place, and it was essentially one gigantic orgy. But it's worse than that, because we're all about goats. And there was this pen that was filled with goats, and when you came to this celebration of Pan, some of what you would do, they, they would have these gigantic phallic symbols, and I'm being slightly crude on purpose. Like, I'm, I'm hoping this evokes in you something of like, oh my, like this, that's, they would take these symbols and put them on carts and bring them through the center of town, and it was like the Macy's Day Parade. 
people would just lose their minds. This is the greatest thing. They'd be jumping up on the card and hugging things and, and like clothes were falling off. is wild. And then some people, mostly the men, would find their way at some point during the week or the weeks over to the goat pen and they would have relations with the goats. Intentionally, hopefully putting you in a place of like, oh my gosh. And this was all part of this celebration. And then like the human bodies, the goat bodies, like all, it just kind of became this hot mess of nasty. So let me read the first line of our passage again. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, what? (laughs) That's not good. Why is he there? Is it time for the party? And is Jesus like totally taking a bender on vacation? Or or what's he do? Why? Why is he there? And you need to know that Jewish rabbis don't just wander around willy-nilly. If Jesus is taking his disciples there, it's because he has a lesson that he wants to teach them. So they find themselves in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, just one other nugget that I think is hilarious. This is where we get the, the name of the festival <laughs> was called Pandemonium. So if you ever say like, our house is so crazy, it's so messy, it's like Pandemonium, don't say that. Like that's, that's there's a lot to unpack there that you don't want to do. Just say it's wild. You can stop at that. So there's some other things now that start to go on here. Because whether you're a Canaanite or whether you're a Greek, they would call this place, this, this cave where this stream, these springs came out, it, it had a particular title through all time. And that title was the Gates of Hades. Because again, this is where the gods would come out from the underworld, and this is where they would interact with people and then interact with the gods who were in the sky. But that was the name of this place. You would go to the Gates of Hades. And that's become, gonna become super important for the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach his students here. Okay, now, there's a couple other things that are going on that are super important for us to know. Uh, when we get to Matthew 16, 18, let's revisit this one sentence one more time. He says this. Peter recognizes, you're the son of the living God. Jesus says, this is phenomenal. This is not just something I taught you that you, that you cooked up. Like, God gave this to you. And then he says this, I tell you, you are Peter. Before now, he's been known as Simon or Simon Peter. Really, if, if Matthew's gonna call him Simon Peter, it's just so that his readers who are reading after this whole story has happened go, oh, oh, that's the Peter guy. This is the moment where Jesus changes his name. Jesus loved nicknames. And he, I love this nickname. You are Peter. Now, the word, if you bust it down back to the original language in the Greek, he says, you are Petros. Your new name is Petros. It means rock or stone. It's, it's not something gigantic, but it's not quite as big as Boulder, but it's something it's rocky, you know? Like my friend Matt Walker, Matt and Ann have a son whose name is Stone. It's just a good, it's a good name. Your name is Stone. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Okay, now looking back through church history, the Catholic church, who I deeply respect, has done some funny things with this because this is where the idea of the Pope begins. Jesus is looking at Peter and he goes, you're the rock and on this rock I will build my church. And the Catholic church says, oh, oh, so Peter, Peter's the first Pope. We're gonna have the the whole kind of church system rotate around this one particular role, Popes. That's one option as you read this story. But there's some other options. Uh, Option two would be there's a confession here that Peter has just made. 
Jesus, you're the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. It could be that Jesus is saying on that rock, that is true, that is, that is bedrock type stuff. On that statement, I will build my church. That could be an option. But then when you look at the full picture, you start to see one other thing going on in the text. It says this, you are Peter, Petros, rock, stone, and on this rock, but then Matthew intentionally, and I think Jesus intentionally uses a totally different, not totally different, it's a different Greek word here. He says, and on this Petra, not Petros, on this Petra, I will build my church. Okay, that's weird. But now I think as we start to go, okay, we've got this Jewish rabbi, he's going to this super sketch place, he's hanging out with his friends, and he has a lesson that he wants to teach. When you look at, go back to the pictures, um, actually, I think it might be a forward picture. Um, show me that next one of Caesarea Philippi. Go forward too, Cody. Okay, Jesus, I don't know exactly where Jesus was standing, but if you're in Caesarea Philippi, this is what you look at. You're looking at a sheer cliff face. The water comes out of the cliff. I mean, this is, this is bedrock. That's what we're talking about here. And when you look at the word Petros, Peter's name, it's stone or rock. But when you look at Petra, Petra is the Greek word for bedrock or cliff. So it would seem pretty clear that Jesus is going, we're going to go into the heart of darkness. And I want you, Peter, you're going to be a rock. You're going to be a part of this thing, but it's on this rock that I will build my church. It's this place where the water comes out, where clearly God is involved. Life is coming from death. But I'm gonna rewrite the story. And then he finishes it by saying, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's, that's where you wanna build your church? <laughs> the place where Las Vegas and Mardi Gras, the, there with these people, because we just came from Galilee. There's a whole bunch of real nice religious folks that hang out down there. Can we just go, like Jerusalem, there's a whole bunch of, of crazy folks down there. They would love to be the place where you build. You want to build it here? And I think Jesus, just kind of a long look, and he looks back at the cliff face. He probably looks down at the people who are kind of doing their thing. I don't know if pandemonium is going on at this point, but it would be unmistakable who lived there. And I think he turns back around to his students. And he says, you bet this is where it happens. Who's my church built for? It's not for the religious insiders. It's not for the folks who have scuttled away to a part of a lake in Galilee. It's for the people of Pandemonium. It's right here. This is where I will build my church. And I have to think that for the disciples, they're like, no, <laughs> no, this, this cannot be happening. This doesn't even make sense. And there's one more nugget that I want to make sure that we pull apart. I guess one other thing before we move on. I grew up, I don't know that, I don't think this was taught to me, but I think I internalized as a kid. Oop, we good? Um, I think I internalized faith as a kid as like a, a foxhole mentality. Like the world is pandemonium. So I'm going to dig a hole while the whole war is going on. I'm going to get my head down below the bullets and I'm just going to hide out here. And anybody who wants to jump in here, as long as they're going to play by the rules, like, we're safe. Everybody, like, just stay low. And I think I see Jesus here jumping down the foxhole and being like, hey, how's it, how's it going down here? Let's go take the hill. Because this is not where my church is. And you're invited. And then he just springs out of the hole and takes off at a dead sprint with a wild laugh. 
That's Jesus. That's what he's showing his disciples in this moment. Stop hiding out in Galilee, man. Stop hanging out at the temple in Jerusalem. There are people out there stuck in pandemonium. This is where the church is. And there's one more piece. The words matter a lot. He says, you are Peter, stone, and on this rock, on this rock face, on this cliff, this is where I will build my church. But the word there for church, you, you may hear, like I hear, the word church, and you go, oh, it's this. Like, it's a building where people come on Sunday and sing. Like, and G- like that's not actually what Jesus is getting at here. When Jesus says church, he uses the word ecclesia. And ecclesia, better translated, is this is where I will build my body. And if you're like, that's abstract. He's really talking about the idea of like a body of voters, like a group of people, or like the body of Apple consumers. Like it's, he's talking about a group of people that make up an organization or make up a structure. This is a relational, people, human-oriented idea that he's getting at. And Jesus is saying it's here. It's with these people that I'm going to build my organization. These people will represent my culture. They will represent my heart to the world, who I am. These people? How? And now what he said about Peter may actually start to feel a little bit like a backhanded compliment. Peter, you're one of the rocks and you belong here. And Peter's like, no, I'm right here. Like, what? (laughs) That is rude. We would expect Jesus to be saying this standing in Jerusalem or in Galilee. But he's made this special trip to the worst people of all to say it's with them. This is who I'm here for. And this is who you're here for if you're going to follow me. And then the next conversation, oh, oh. The next conversation just pushes the ball that much further downhill. As we read on, we're gonna start now in verse 21. So this is right, this, this is happening in the same place. We don't have any clues, any hints that Jesus has left the place where he's standing. And it goes on and it says this in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, okay, wait, hang on a second. <laughs> so, so if you're a Jewish rabbi's student, your whole goal is to listen to and become just like your rabbi. You never, ever rebuke your rabbi. Like, this is a major faux pas. Like, Peter, Peter's kind of got, like, a little too big for his britches here. He pulls aside his rabbi, and he says, hey, you said you're going to die? And, and right away, like, the, any reader is like, oh, no, Peter. <laughs> like, you, you've overstepped. You've gone from rocky to rock-headed. But he keeps going. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Okay, let's put together all of the pieces here. This, I think, may, may have become this week one of my favorite stories, if not my favorite story in the entire book of Matthew. Jesus has just been looking at this group of people 
the most messed up, immoral, screwy group of people that you can fathom. I mean, to us today, who, who live in a pretty wild world, we hear about them and we go, oh. Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, they will become a part of my body. The next thing that happens to my body is my body goes to be hung on a cross and killed. And Peter, right away, just seeing his friend, is like, no, 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 that can't happen. You cannot die. And Jesus, I, I can just, like, his eyes are just so focused on heaven, like something so much higher. Peter's worried about his friend. Jesus is worried about these people. Because Jesus is not going, I want to endorse their lifestyle. I want them to stay doing what they're doing. They're fine. I want them to be a part of my body, no questions asked. Jesus is saying, I want them to be a part of my body, and then it's got to die. They will have to die. If you want to be my student, Peter, you will have to die. Pick up your cross and follow me. And I think Jesus, I don't think, Jesus is looking at these people going, this is not how God designed you. This is not what he made you for. I need you to die to these things, these literal idols that are in your life because they are not God and you worship them as though they were. Stop bowing down to these idols. Put that to death. And the part that, that Peter and these students of Jesus will miss for the next several chapters is they only hear half of what he says. He says, I have to go down to Jerusalem. I'm gonna die. And that's all they hear. But he just said it. I mean, I don't know if you caught it. It should have like freaked him out a little bit. I'm gonna die. But then three days later, I'm gonna come back to life. It's like, oh, cool, zombie movie. What are you talking about? You're gonna come back to life. Jesus is saying, look, these people, the way they're living, these idols, they have to die. But that's not the end of the story anymore. They're still beloved of God. They still have purpose in the world. There is more for them. They need to be restored back to who they were always supposed to be. And so after three days of making sure that sucker is dead, new life will come back. On this rock, this place where life comes out of dead things, this is where I will build my church. Out of people whose lives are death and nothing good comes, we will put that to death and we will raise them up in my body as a new creation. Everything that keeps you feeling guilty and ashamed and low, the things you struggle with, the addictions, all put to death and raised new in a fresh start. Ah, and Jesus goes from this place and from here on out for the entire rest of the story of Matthew, Jesus walks in a pretty straight line. He will start here and he'll say, in Caesarea Philippi, this is where I'll build my church. We're in chapter 16. The entire rest of the book of Matthew, if you track geographically where Jesus is going, Matthew does not deviate. Jesus has set his sights on Jerusalem. And he's just told Peter, he knows exactly what's gonna happen there. It's a cross that's waiting for him. For the next several weeks at least, one step at a time, Jesus continues with his eyes focused on the destination he knows he has to go through. But he also is keenly aware that it is not the end. The Jewish people uh, would have these pilgrimages that they would make to Jerusalem every year. And there's Psalms, uh, in the book of Psalms, everything between Psalm 120 and I think it's Psalm 134, 35, are called the Songs of Ascent. You can see it in your Bible, it'll say right at the top, like right next to Psalm 120, a song of ascent. 
And the reason why they're called that is because Jerusalem is built on top of a hill. And so if you were going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would have to ascend, you would have to go up. So Jesus is now the furthest away that he's going to get. He's now set his sights on what he has to do, and now he will ascend toward his inevitable death, knowing with these people in mind he was just with, with Peter in mind who he is currently with, when I come back to life, I'm giving you a fresh start. You don't have to be stuck in pandemonium anymore. In fact, pandemonium, it cannot prevail against my body. It may look strong. It may make you feel like you want to crawl in a foxhole and just wait till the bullets stop whizzing around. That's not it. This war, (laughs) this pandemonium, it can't beat me. There's life that comes out of death. And that's the invitation of Caesarea Philippi. I'm going to bring out the band. But I don't care if you've been following Jesus for a really long time. And I don't care if you're coming to church today like, look, this is like the last chance I'm giving God. I I don't think it matters. I think the point of this message is good for everyone. The invitation exists today. Where do you put your shame? Where do you put your guilt? How do you wrestle with your lust or your hate or your sadness or your loneliness? Put it here. Let it be in his body. It's in these places that Jesus says, here, yes, here, this is where I will begin with you. Allow those things to be put to death with him on the cross. And take heart. Don't forget that on the third day he is risen. And when he is risen to new life, you also come back to life with him. A new life, a forgiven life, a clean start. No longer at the temple of Pan. No longer living as a half beast, half human, but fully human, fully alive, vibrant, filled to the brim what you were always intended to be. And that's not just something that you wait for that comes someday when you die. It begins today. Whether you've called yourself a follower for years, whether you're new to the whole story, you're invited to consider today just one more day where you can choose or refuse this invitation. But you need to know something. You're wanted. You are loved so deeply. You belong in this body. Jesus continues to look at you and every other part of his body with the same affection and excitement like Gustav Eiffel. He repeats on the daily. It may not look like a lot to you right now, but I got plans. You should see all that this will become when it's finished someday. He loves you enough to take away the things that are killing you. He goes into death first. He invites you in to follow so that you can join him coming out of it on the other side. It's the most beautiful story. And now we will watch over the next several weeks as Jesus sets his eyes on death itself and unflinchingly walks out of the foxhole. And with his disciples and his friends and maybe even you and me walking behind him, he will walk towards putting those things to death so that life can now spring out of something like a rock. Caesarea Philippi. 
can't believe he went there. I want to follow this rabbi. He's wild. You're invited to consider this. We're going to take some time now to sing. But I would say, if, there, if there's anything stirring in you that you're like, I don't want to sing right now. I just want to think. I want to consider. I want to listen. What are you saying to me right now? What are the idols in me that need to be put to death? I would just invite you. You can stay seated if you want. But wrestle with it. You can't continue as a half beast, half human. You're invited. For those that want to, let's stand and sing.